This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Forty years ago this fall semester, Westminster Seminary, California, welcomed its first incoming class of students. Our founding faculty members began to retire about 20 years ago. Now, some of our second-generation faculty have retired or have been called to serve the Lord in other places. So we're in another phase of generational change in Escondido, as we welcome two new faculty members this year, one of whom is the Reverend Dr. Brad Bittner. He grew up in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, in Illinois, and has since lived in various places in the United States and around the world. After receiving his bachelor's degree from Taylor University in Indiana, he earned a master's degree in biblical theology and exegesis in Massachusetts, and he served as a pastor for three years before pursuing doctoral studies. He completed his Ph.D. in New Testament and early Christianity in 2013 at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. He's taught New Testament, Greek, biblical theology at Oak Hill College and Macquarie University. Oak Hill is in the UK. In 2015, Brad published Paul's political strategy in 1 Corinthians 1-1 through 4-6, Constitution and Covenant through Cambridge University Press. And he has two other book projects in the works, one on the biblical theology of Gerhardus Voss and another on Paul's paradigm for building up the church in 1 Corinthians. He serves as the editor on the Ephesus volume in New Documents Illustrating Early Christianity, which is forthcoming from Erdman's in Grand Rapids. In addition to these projects, Brad has published essays in edited volumes and articles in peer-reviewed journals, including Noam Testamentum and other places. As a pastor and a churchman, he has served as a ruling elder in the only Free Church of Scotland congregation in England, that's London City Presbyterian Church, not far from St. Paul's, where he has frequently preached and taught Christian education classes. Brad and his wife, Kathy, have seven children, and he joins Dr. Nick Brennan, whom we'll talk to later, as a new faculty member here at Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, Brad, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me, and it's wonderful to finally be here. Well, it's great to have you here. We're very excited to have you in Escondido and on campus. And just so the listener knows, we're doing this interview under the COVID rules. And so Brad is really here in Escondido. He's not still in London. But in order to keep him safe, and I guess me, he is in his office and I am in the studio. But we are on the campus together at the same time as we are talking. So it's great to have you here. Sorry to have to do this under such unusual circumstances. But how was your move? And how has your adjustment been so far? Well, it's all been very strange, as I'm sure it has been for everybody. But we are really grateful to the Lord for bringing us here. We left London on June 30th and were able to fly with the family direct to L.A. And then we got picked up there and brought down later that day to Escondido. So we had some farewells, which were sad uh, and socially distanced in London. And then we had a 14-day quarantine here where we were well provided for. We had some food in the fridge waiting for us 
class, but now we're able to get out a little bit and begin to explore. So the kids are doing well and enjoying our first worship, socially distanced outdoors, in over four months yesterday morning. Wow. So that's fantastic. So we were, I think, in the same service yesterday. We were out under the tent in the courtyard at Calvin Christian School. So we have done a variety of things. We were until recently meeting indoors. And then uh, before that, we were gathering in the parking lot of the church, sitting in our cars, listening to the sermon. The pastor stood on the back of a truck and uh, they had a little FM transmitter. I think, in fact, they were still using that uh, yesterday as well because there were people missing. So we're doing what we can to adapt to these crazy circumstances. It's a little hard to get used to a new place when you're stuck in a house for 14 days. Yes, uh, we used a lot of Google Maps to kind of have a look around at places we wanted to explore, but it's been much nicer to have a bit of freedom. So to get out, do some walks in the morning, send the boys on a few runs and drive to shops. And we even took a little drive to, is it Del Dios Reservoir uh, on Saturday and had a little hike. That was great. Okay. Yeah, it is a reservoir and it is on Del Dios. But if you, right now I can't think of the name of it. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It, we got some rain uh, during our brief rainy season earlier. So we, there's actually some water in that. There was. Um, yeah, that's a nice drive. If you keep going west all the way to the coast, it's a beautiful drive. Nice, windy, twisty road. And um, you can go straight or you can go down. When you get to the stop sign, you can take a left and go down the hill. And uh, that's nice, too. So very good. It, it's a beautiful area here. And as you uh, are discovering, the weather is nice. Did you have to explain to your children what that big orange thing in the sky was? <laughs> You know, we had in England, the months of May and June were maybe some of the sunniest on record. And we had temperatures in the 70s, even low 80s. So they had a nice ramp up. But uh, the sunshine here has amazed us and we're really enjoying it, soaking it up. I'm surprised they didn't declare a national emergency in the UK with all that stuff. <laughs> well, there were some people who were melting, I think. <laughs> it could actually be a little bit of a problem since uh, no one has air conditioning in the United Kingdom. So That's it's, right. It's just not a necessity. I know I was there in uh, 98, I think was the last time I was there. All right. And I was in a suit, and uh, then I had on top of that a robe, and it was 70. Five or 74, you know, something like that, yeah. mid to low 70s. And it was probably 70% humidity. And uh, I remember that as sort of intense experience. <laughs> yes. We're glad you're here. That's exciting. And uh, I know you're looking forward to your new career here. Let's let the listener get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. You grew up in the PCA, but where did you do that? Sure. So I was born and raised in Peoria, Illinois. So I'm I'm a Midwestern boy. My dad worked for Cat Tractor Company his whole career. And so that was the world headquarters until very recently. And yes, I was actually baptized in the PCUSA. And then when I was fairly young, my parents decided it was time to leave that church and that denomination. And uh, we found our way to the PCA locally. So Grace Presbyterian Church was my home church growing up in Peoria and had a wonderful time there, really, in corporate worship growing up and great youth group and some youth pastors and Sunday school teachers, all of whom were faithful in pointing me to Christ in the scriptures and I heard the gospel of grace. And so at some point when I was quite young, I believe I understood the the gospel and embraced that by faith. But when I was about 14, the minister there, Dr. Bruce Dunn, took us through a class 
together. And at the end of that, we sat down with the session and they asked us some questions. And then we took vows of membership before the congregation. So became a communicant member at that stage. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking with the Reverend Dr. Brad Bittner, Associate Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. So you are a child of the covenant. This is a thing that we talk about all the time. It is a wonderful thing, as I've often told my wife, who was also raised in a Christian home and has always believed. She does not remember a time when she did not believe. So that is a great blessing, and that's a thing for which we hope for our children and pray. And all of that prayer, your prayer of your parents and elders and pastors, all of that bore fruit, and uh, you inherited by grace alone through faith alone. Right, all of the benefits and blessings promised in the covenant of grace. You know, we sometimes look for these dramatic conversion stories. Yeah. You and I both have probably talked to people who have said, well, you know, Pastor, I didn't have a shattering experience, so I'm, I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian. And I always say to them, well, do you believe? Oh, well, yes, I believe. <laughs> there you go. Then you are a Christian. The shattering experience part, if that happens in the providence of God, well, that is a blessing too. But it is a great blessing simply to realize I do believe, and that is the fruit of the work of the Spirit that Jesus spoke about to Nicodemus in John 3. Yes, it really is looking back, especially more and more, at something I'm so grateful for. And I think when I was younger, junior high, senior high, I would often wish oh, that I had a spectacular testimony of some kind to give. But I'm more and more grateful for the fact that the Lord placed me where he did in a Christian family and in a wonderful covenant community. And I was able to slowly, slowly grow into that and adopt that as my own by faith. And as you say, that's something we pray for our own kids as we baptized them and took vows that they would never remember a day when they didn't know and love and trust the Lord Christ as their Savior. So really grateful that that's been my experience as I look back. How did you get from Peoria to Taylor in Indiana? I ask partly out of a personal interest because my mother-in-law and her sister, they're both students of and one was a graduate of Taylor. Okay. Well, again, as I look back, it's interesting to see how in God's providence I ended up there. I cast the net fairly widely in applications for colleges and was looking far east as places like Boston and elsewhere. But in the end, it was a visit to the campus early in my senior year of high school where I was hooked and they were generous with some financial help. And it was about a five-hour drive or so from home, which seemed like a good distance at the time. And then I was able to do a summer program just before my freshman year, where I met some guys who've remained very good friends over the years. And so we ended up together at Taylor for four years and met my wife there as a bonus. So the Lord was very kind. Well, then you made a good choice. (laughs) That's great. What a blessing. So when did you start thinking about becoming a pastor? And I ask this because one of the things that some of our listeners are asking themselves and um, people who are considering seminary are asking themselves is, you know, I think I might become a pastor, but I'm just not sure. So I think it's helpful to hear stories from people who've become pastors as to exactly what happened to them and how they made that decision. Yes, and I'll say more about this maybe in a few minutes, but I am still thinking about that question in my circumstance because although I've served as a pastor, I'm ordained as a ruling elder at the moment. And one of the things I'm looking forward to in the next year is pursuing ordination as a minister or teaching elder in one of the Presbyterian or Reformed denominations here. But 
But I think really there was a sense of an interest, maybe a call as early as my time in junior high back at Grace Presbyterian Church. I can remember talking to some of the pastors there on the church staff and asking, how do you know if that's something you're called to and being encouraged to be prayerful and to prepare in ways that might help with that. So I went off then to college and wasn't quite sure, but did some biblical studies, some philosophy, some history. And I guess these were things I was both interested in inherently, but also had in the back of my mind that if I did anything related to pastoral ministry, they would come in handy. And then went from Taylor straight to seminary at Gordon-Conwell, north of Boston on the East Coast, and still wasn't sure. So entered as an MA student rather than an MDiv, thinking that that might prepare me for some more academic work. But I think it was really over the course of my time during seminary there at Gordon-Conwell, I became more and more convinced that I ought to be closely tied as possible to the church in doing biblical studies and theology. And that was partly due to my advisor. So Dr. Rick Lentz was my advisor there, was a wonderful counselor in many ways, and partly also encouragement from others. So I had an internal sense of interest, but more and more people externally affirming that I might have that calling or some gifts that would be useful. So at the end of my time at Gordon-Conwell, we were, that is Kathy and myself, we were married and she was looking at some further study in the Boston area. I was finishing and uh, a church got in touch on the west side of the city who needed a pastor. And I got in conversation with them, and their session appointed me as a short-term pastor. So constitutionally, this was a Greek-American evangelical church. Their synod was based in Athens, Greece, but they had provision to call an English minister. And that's what I did for three years, then straight after seminary. So I suppose a combination of all of those things led me internally, externally to land there. That's an unusual field of service, serving Yes. How was that? I mean, Boston's a beautiful place to live, work, and serve. But as I say, that's kind of an unusual place to serve. Yes. So this particular church and denomination had close, friendly ties with the PCA and also with uh, a denomination, the Conservative Congregational Churches in New England, Four Cs. And that's how I got connected with them. So as I got to know the church through their elders and their minister, realized that there was quite a lot in common theologically and that they had a need because they were an immigrant community in the 50s and 60s. A lot of Greeks had moved over. They got to the point where in the late 90s, early 2000s, the younger generations weren't able to sit and take in a Greek sermon as well as they would like. And so they had simultaneous services, one in Greek, one in English, and then a combined translated service once a month with the Lord's Supper. So I ended up uh, helping them for some years in the English side of things. Well, we know about that here. So you were what we call around here an EM, right? You were the English language minister. We have a Right. A, a lot yeah. of Korean students who are doing that while they are in seminary, sometimes before, sometimes after. So yeah, we understand that process very well here. You uh, also spent a number of years at Oak Hill Theological College. And uh, as you were doing that, you were serving, as you said, as a ruling elder at London City Presbyterian Church. I know that by having visited there and worshiped with you all. And one of our graduates, Harrison Perkins, Dr. Harrison Perkins, is an associate pastor there. So you've got connections through him to us. 
So tell us a little bit about what your life was like in London as you were teaching at Oak Hill and serving as a ruling elder there at London City Presbyterian. Yeah, we had a wonderful six years in London and in England. We'd been there a few times before, but more on the order of a month or two at a time. So we moved there in 2014. That was uh, just shortly after I'd finished a PhD in New Testament. And so I was uh, appointed as tutor in New Testament and Greek and biblical theology there. And I didn't know much about Oak Hill until I went to interview and then we moved in. Oak Hill, some might know, it has been in the news very briefly recently. One of their former lecturers just passed away, one who's much better known than I am by the name of J.I. Packer. So in his early days, he taught uh, at Oak Hill College. And uh, it's been a place for the last nearly 90 years in the UK where evangelical reformed Anglicans and free church candidates for ministry have gone to train. It was founded initially in 1932 by a man who wanted to make sure that students who couldn't afford to go up to Oxford or Cambridge for theological training could have a place to train that was both evangelical and reformed in its soteriology at least. And so it's remained faithful to that calling and I was able to teach there alongside some great colleagues, and we found soon after we arrived that if we drove about 45, 50 minutes or took the tube, that is the subway in London, down into the center of London, we could find a wonderful, faithful, confessionally reformed Presbyterian church that was in the Scottish tradition. And so we got involved there, we were warmly welcomed, and after about a year, I was installed there as an elder on their Kirk session, having been ordained previously in the PCA in Indianapolis in about 2008. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu 888-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church You're listening to Office Hours We're talking with the Reverend Dr. Brad Bittner Associate Professor of New Testament At Westminster Seminary, California Tell us a little bit about your academic interest. So I mentioned at the beginning of the program your uh, doctoral dissertation, which was published by Cambridge University Press. I know this is terribly unfair, but if you could summarize briefly, what was that project? What's your major argument? And how did you come to that? Sure. That was both the project and the place where I did it, which was Macquarie University in Australia, were in large part due to the Reverend Dr. Bruce Winter, who used to be the warden at Tyndall House in Cambridge. And when I was thinking about uh, having spent some time 
in ministry in Boston and then moving on to do some teaching at a classical Christian school in Indianapolis. I'd been out of studying for about a decade and I was tentatively being encouraged and enticed to go back to do a bit more study. So I spent a summer in 2006 in Cambridge at Tyndall House and Bruce was still the warden and we had a wonderful time being introduced to all kinds of ancillary disciplines, epigraphy, papyrology, so inscriptions and ancient documents. How do you make use of those for New Testament? or biblical studies, spent some time on the field as well. And we went to Corinth and spent a week learning how to read an archaeological site. And it was one evening in Corinth, sitting with Bruce, looking at some inscriptions and hearing about his thoughts on what you could do if you reconstructed the colonial charter or constitution that Corinth would have had when it was refounded by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. And that set me off, set me running, and ended up doing that project in the Department of Ancient History at Macquarie University. So in summary, what I tried to do was uh, take some existing fragments of constitutions from places like Carthage in North Africa and Urso in southern Spain, two cities that were contemporaneously chartered by Caesar, and use those along with some local extant inscriptions in Corinth to do a bit of reconstructing what would the framework for public life and law have been like in Paul's Corinth. And then from there, to begin to try and listen carefully to what he's saying in 1 Corinthians especially, and how that might have resonated or jarred against the kind of ideology and public life and values that we can infer from the sources in Corinth. And I ended up focusing especially on the Thanksgiving section in chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, where the name of Jesus in verses 1 to 10 is mentioned 10 times, as one old commentator said, it, it is pounded into the ear as you listen to the opening of the letter. And the way that the grace of Christ and the community that he has helped to found there in Corinth is laid out is really striking, especially when you set it against a cultural background. And then I focused in another chapter on the section 3, 5 to 4, 5, where Paul deals with this famous metaphor of the church as a temple and himself as a master builder or architect. And I think is doing some amazing work to deconstruct cultural values and views of what leadership looked like, and then to reconstruct in its place a very different gospel-centered, gospel foundation for the church and for the views that we ought to have of our ministers as those who are workers, laborers, and who are held accountable to the gospel pattern as they labor in the church. So you are a New Testament backgrounds guy. I guess you could say that, um, yes, although I like to think of this kind of work I was doing as almost cultural foreground, because I love to pay attention to the Old Testament background as well. Well, all of that sounds really interesting. I confess I have not yet looked at your dissertation, but uh, I will endeavor to take a look at that, because that's the kind of work that we want our students to be doing. It's the kind of work we want uh, to expose them to as they seek to read the New Testament, first of all, in the original languages, but secondly, in the original context. Tell us a little bit about why that's so important, not just to take a verse and lift it out of its context, but to be sure to be reading it very carefully in its original context. And then, of course, theologically in its broader biblical theological context. Yes, I think all of my training over the years 
as an undergrad and then on into seminary and beyond instilled in me a, a sense that you've got to pay attention to the text as a text. And of course, when we come to scripture, it's a text like no other. We're talking about an amazing dual authorship there, but we don't want to downplay either the human or the divine author. And as we think about that human author in a certain time, in a certain place, writing in a certain language, even writing with a kind of idiolect or certain personalized idiom, all of those things are really helpful to pay attention to. And one of the great sets of tools we have, I believe, to listen well to what the text is saying are those resources, the cultural resources and the linguistic resources, whether it's ancient Near East or the Greco-Roman context. So I think that's really important because these are more than ordinary texts, but they're not less than. And if we want to be faithful interpreters, we've got to work hard to be able to listen and be surprised by what we hear rather than import our own assumptions into the text. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You are going to be teaching Greek already this summer. So you've just hit the ground, and as soon as you were released from quarantine, we've got you teaching Greek 1 this summer. That's right. No rest for the wicked here. So we're plunging right in. A week from tomorrow, we're going to start Summer Greek. And I've been working hard with the folks here at the seminary. We've got a further challenge because we've learned that we have to do this online. So this will be a new adventure in lots of ways, but I'm confident that we can do this well. And I'm really excited. I love teaching Greek to students and walking with them through the Greek sequence uh, to the point where they can engage responsibly and take some delight in reading the New Testament text. So we're going to kick that off next week. Well, it's exciting. And I remember when I first started learning Greek in university and uh, started learning to read the New Testament, it was really stimulating and in important ways opened up the New Testament to me in probably unexpected ways. It's so interesting. You know, I was just working on James recently, and uh, we are blessed to have a lot of really good English translations. But as valuable as those are, they're still nothing quite like looking at the text for yourself and working through the text in the original language for yourself and making that text your own and asking yourself, well, you know, what does this say? And uh, what does this prepositional phrase seem to imply? And uh, what is James, in this case, working on the context of James 2.14? What's he saying here? What's he up to without in a sense, the distraction of looking at the translation saying, hmm, I wonder why they made that translational choice, or I wonder what the background is, or all of that's removed, and it's just you and the text. And that's, a, I think, an essential discipline for men who are entering pastoral ministry and who are going to be standing in the pulpit and announcing to the congregation, thus saith the Lord. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's such a wonderful language, really, Greek. You know, there's an essay by C.S. Lewis called The Parthenon and the Optative, uh, where he talks about, well, let all of the young folks learn Latin. Uh, you know, that's all right, and that's necessary, but keep back Greek for the really good ones. <laughs> I, I, love, I love to start with that because uh, it holds out Greek as if it is a treat, and I think that's true to some degree. It's daunting for some, especially those who maybe haven't learned an ancient or a case language before, but there is a lot that you can do, even as you are moving through the different levels 
levels of competence because it slows you down as you come to the New Testament text and it helps you to evaluate are the questions I'm asking really the ones that the text is wanting me to ask because often you know I'll see things in the Greek text that prompt me to different kinds of questions that I would have known to ask if I were just reading one of those great English translations. And I like to talk to students about ideas of discourse, flow, and prominence. And that may sound kind of complicated, but really just means, especially as you're reading maybe Paul's letters or other epistles in the New Testament, there's often an argument that's laid out. And there are sections and steps to that argument, but it may not move or flow in the same kind of way as we are used to in English. And as you're reading through the Greek, there are different words, phrases, tenses, that help you often to see points where the text breaks, points where certain things are held up as more prominent. And I think that's just wonderful. When I was preaching two, three times a week in Boston at the Greek church, I remember working with the Greek text each time and trying prayerfully to say, Lord, help me to preach with the flow of the text so that the points I'm making are the points that you want me to make from the text and trying to lash yourself as closely as you can to the structure of the text through that study is difficult. But it's also something that gives you great confidence when you stand up in the pulpit because you know that imperfect as you are, you've done your best work prayerfully and that by the Spirit, you're proclaiming something that is running with the grain of the text. When you're not looking at papyri or working carefully and patiently through a passage of New Testament Greek, what do you like to do? Well, you mentioned at the top that we've got seven kids. So our lives are wonderfully full and busy as a family. And family is the frame in which I live, for sure. My oldest are 14. They're going to be freshmen this year. And the youngest is nearly five. So we've got a good spread of ages. I love spending time with the kids. We're not anything expert, but we love to make music together. So play a variety of instruments and enjoy some singing at home. When I am in better shape than I am at the moment. I like to go running with my older boys and get out and play frisbee, a little bit of basketball, um, those sorts of things. Love to read and to try to read outside of biblical studies and theology and keep myself fresh in those ways, read fiction, read poetry, find that really helpful. So those are some of the things I spend my time on. Well, Brad, we are grateful that you are here, grateful that you're safe and healthy and that all is well and that you're getting ready to begin to lead another crop of students. This is, as I said at the outset, beginning our this fall, our 40th year of instruction. So 40 times we have led students, most of the time without a lot of background in Greek or Hebrew, into the original languages so that by the time they were done, they had a reasonable reading facility in the original languages. And um, you're joining that tradition, and we look forward to the contributions that you are going to be making. Thanks. It is a privilege to be here, and I'm excited to get to know the students this year and be part of that tradition. You're listening to Office Hours, and we've been talking with the Reverend Dr. Brad Bittner, our new associate professor of New Testament. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.